0: Welcome to the weekly Dharma Talk podcast from the Columbus Karma Teksum Choling Buddhist Meditation Center. This week's Dharma Talk is entitled Introduction to Nunye Practice by Lama Kathy Wesley. Centuries ago, an Indian princess with a dreaded disease was exiled to a forest and left to die. Instead, she experienced a spiritual awakening and transformation that cured her and began a tradition of mantra practice beloved to this day. Lama Kathy offers an introduction to the fasting practice of Chinrezig, and tells how the princess's tradition is carried out today in modern America. If you like our Dharma Talk series, please consider donating to Columbus Karma Tixam Choling at columbusktc.org. Enjoy the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for being here today. I'm really delighted to to be here uh, and uh, to have this opportunity to talk with you uh, about things that are, shall we say, important. Over the last few weeks, um, we've been uh, going through a lot as a human family. Uh, There's been a lot going on in the world and everywhere that's making people feel um, anxious, and also um, a little worried about the future. And uh, and so today, I want to talk a little bit about um, who we can rely on and what we can rely on in times like this. Last week, uh, we spoke a little bit about um, how to keep your light alive in the midst of uh, difficult and sometimes depressing times and we spoke a little bit last week about uh, about how to nurture our own inner caring for ourselves and our own inner strength so we talked a little bit about that last week and um, and this week I want to build on that by talking about how to nurture, Um, a source of strength that we may not even be aware that we have. And that is um, our uh, Buddha nature. Um, I know that um, His Holiness the Dalai Lama likes to talk about uh, our inner reservoirs of wisdom and compassion that we all have, that we receive naturally from being human, that we have uh, these natural reservoirs of of peace and goodness and wisdom within us. And that the reason that spiritual life resonates with us is because of this naturally occurring uh, goodness and wisdom that's within all of us. Uh, The Buddha, rather in his teachings, he rather parochially called it Buddha nature, but you could just as easily call it Christ nature or uh, divine nature. You could call it whatever. Be, but the Buddha said that this mind is uh, equipped with the capacity to know itself. It can know many things. I mean, we all went to school, right? We all went to school, we all got our grade cards, we all took tests and showed what we knew and and proved that we were smart. We did all of that, those kind of knowledges we accumulate through our life. But I'm talking more about a different kind of knowledge, the the mind's capacity to know itself. And it begins for us when we first start practicing quiet sitting meditation, and we become aware of our thoughts, often for the very first time. Become aware of our thoughts as a person would become aware of something uh, floating down the stream, if they were sitting on a riverside, just watching the leaves and the branches go by. One would think nothing of seeing Uh, those leaves and branches, but every now and then something unusual would come down the stream. And you would say, my goodness, that's in the stream? And so on and so forth. But it's like that for us when we start meditating. When we first start meditating, our thoughts are like watching the branches and the leaves go down the stream. We're not exactly sure what they all mean, but we just see them go by. But when we first start noticing our thoughts, this is, this is big because before we started noticing individual thoughts, we only noticed the, the full story that was being told. Like my life is wonderful because this thing just happened or my life is terrible because this thing just happened. We see a story, but we don't see individual thoughts and how those individual thoughts can bring us into that story. And so this is the value of meditation because through this reflection, through this internal reflection, we can begin to see the story and how the story is constructed, how the story is built, one thought after another, after another, after another. And at first this might seem distressing because I frequently tell the story of a gentleman who came up to me saying, Oh, I was doing fine until I started meditating. He said, before I started meditating, I thought I was a pretty nice guy. I thought I was a pretty nice guy. But then when I was, when I was made aware through the, the thoughts I discard in meditation, <laughs> the thoughts I set aside in meditation in order to return to my breath or whatever, he said, I found out I'm not really a very nice person at all. I'm really not very compassionate at all. Uh, the, his thoughts were not matching his story. And for him, this was a little bit of, we'll call it a rude awakening. We'll call it a rude awakening, as it is for many of us. But the other part of this is that he noticed this. He actually noticed this. And the reason this is very special is that most of us don't practice self-reflection on a regular basis. And when we don't practice self-reflection, we get surprised. You mean, I thought that? And so on. But the fact of the matter is, we have all kinds of thoughts that arise while we meditate. And who knows where they come from? They come from Uh, maybe our deep subconscious mind, or they come from previous lives, who knows. But we are aware of them. We can be aware of these thoughts. The mind can be aware of its own thoughts. This is big. Because what this means is that actually we can begin to change the narrative. The man who first thought he was compassionate then realized he wasn't now could become compassionate. Does that make sense? I mean, because he became aware of the system, he is able to change what's happening. He was able to make a shift to really become the compassionate person he thought he was. Starting first with the way he responded to his own, um, shall we call it trash talk? You know, where he would kind of like say trashy things about himself or say trashy things about others in his mind, right? So when he began to address the trash talk and realize he could actually stop the trash talk, set it aside and think of something else, this was major for him because it meant that change was possible. So um, I wanted to start with this today because... um, Because our mind is with us all the time. Have you noticed? Your mind is with you all the time. And so if you can make friends with this mind that you have and appreciate its capacity to know things and to even know and notice itself and notice its patterns and discard those patterns and take on new patterns, the mind has this interesting ability that we never really thought about. And we can actually begin to take charge of this process and through our uh, training of our minds in love, training our minds in compassion, training our minds in wisdom, this self-knowledge, this self-awareness. So that's kind of where I wanna go today. And, um, and uh, I wanna talk also a little bit about a, uh, a retreat that's coming up that will, be using one of these many methods for transformation. So I want to I want to talk about two different things: the transformation itself, our Buddha nature, and uh, and how practice can help us develop our Buddha nature. So that's a little bit about what we're going to talk about. Uh, I think I have time. Um, but first things first, we'll start with our intention. This is a very Buddhist thing. Uh, Buddhists like to start. Uh, If you've heard the talks by um, our Dharma friend, uh, Eric Weinberg, when he's spoken here, he frequently talks of the three excellences, excellent at the beginning, excellent at the middle, excellent at the end. Excellent at the beginning means we aim our study and practice toward the accomplishment of goodness for ourselves and for others. So we start with altruism. We lead with an altruistic thought. Then in the middle, we try to hold that altruistic thought, even if the speaker is boring, even if the subject doesn't 100% resonate with us, we try to maintain that positive attitude in the middle. And then at the end, we dedicate the goodness with an excellent dedication, dedicating it to all beings. So that's a little bit about why we do these prayers. Uh, the tradition is to do them in Tibetan, but I like I, I like for folks to know what they're saying. So we're we're going to recite this two times in English, so we can absorb uh, the meaning of uh, of this, and uh, and then I'll recite it once in Tibetan, so you can kind of get the blessing of the person who wrote this prayer. In the oh gosh, Atisha would have been tenth century, so there you go. All right, we'll start with the words in the Buddha. Would you like um, a copy? Okay. In the Buddha, the Dharma, and the assembly most excellent, I take refuge until I reach enlightenment. By the merit of generosity and other good deeds, may I achieve enlightenment for the sake of all beings. In the Buddha, the Dharma, and the assembly most excellent, I take refuge until I reach enlightenment. By the merit of generosity and other good deeds, May I achieve enlightenment for the sake of all beings. And now we'll recite it in Tibetan. (laughs) O Sanje Chudan Soji Chonamla Jang Chu Pardu Tani Kyapsuji. Dajin so Okay, thanks everyone. I'll recite one more prayer of my own and then we'll get started. Oh fallen soel amarimboche tagichor pdetenshala carden jembogor neche sonthai ko sumthiking urup sa to so okay thank you um, in my in my previous life meaning about Forty years ago, in, uh, in my previous life, I was a, a newspaper reporter, and I interviewed a, a, a woman who uh, every I, every weekday, Monday through Friday, would come to the uh, Second Presbyterian Church in Newark, Ohio, in the downtown, and play the chimes on uh, the, the, uh, the carillon. Or is, is that how you pronounce her, Or carillon, carillon. Anyway, play the play the ch- Play these uh, beautiful this beautiful set of bells. Uh, for maybe 10 or 15 minutes during every lunch break, like 12 noon to one o'clock, she would show up and play these bells every day. And she did this without charging money. She just went down to the church and they let her use their their bell set to play usually some uh, Christian hymns or something. And uh, And I interviewed her about this because I thought it was interesting that this person would volunteer their time coming downtown every single day To do this and she said oh well there's a there's a a very deeply spiritual reason why i do this she said and uh and she said you know there are there are like forces in every community and some of these forces are forces of good and some of these forces are forces for evil and she said i want to be one of the good ones and that really that that touched me it touched me that you know maybe my belief system and hers are not quite the same but the way i see it we were in agreement about one thing and that is that we through what we think say and do can contribute directly to the well-being of others by what we do and so for her the music was a way of giving something uplifting to the community So, um, I thought about that a lot and it still resonates with me because, uh, I think about the, um, the, the Buddhist teaching about Buddha nature. And uh, he said, the Buddha said basically that we have this mind that can know things, knowledge, it can actually know its own thoughts and so on, but it can actually also know its own nature. It can actually look at and regard and, and be present with itself. And um, in the modern day, uh, there's a young master named uh, Yonggi Mingyur Rinpoche, whose um, Tergar International um, uh, or Educational Organization teaches a type of awareness meditation in which a person becomes aware of their own awareness. It's really quite lovely. It's very simple. He calls it anywhere, anytime meditation, because you don't need to, you don't need to uh, sit on a cushion in a room uh, and sit quietly in order to make your mind aware of itself, which I think is really interesting. And, uh, and of course, I've taught this here before, so you've seen my example that he gave me where he, uh, he waved his hand gently in front of my face. When I asked him, I said, well, what's this awareness thing all about? He said, well, you're aware of this, aren't you? Do you you see this? And I'm like, "Mm mm-hmm. And then he snapped his fingers. He said, you hear that? And I'm like, "Mm mm-hmm. He said, that's it. He said, you're aware of what you see, and you're aware of what you hear, but you can also be aware of awareness. And I said, that's subtle. Much more subtle than the thought that I just let go of in meditation. A lot more subtle. But he said if you can do this from time to time throughout your day, he said you'll begin to see that the the thoughts that you have are just an expression of this awareness that might be flavored by, believe it or not, our habits. Big surprise, right? We develop habits of thinking, habits of doing, habits of believing. We have all of these habits. And the habits form, I guess you could say, a mold into which our awareness goes. And our awareness then expresses itself through these habits. When I when I went on three-year retreat, uh, my teacher, Kempo Karthar Rinpoche, liked to tell us, well, you know what you're doing in this life. He said, all you're doing in this life is making habits. He used the Tibetan word for it, which was bak chak, bakchak, Bak chak habits. And he said, that's all you're doing in this life. And I was like, man, that's depressing. He said, but no, no, he says it's not, because he said you can make good ones. And I'm like, oh, the, the bell ringing lady. Okay, good ones. I can make good ones. Okay, Let, uh, sign me up. I want to I make some good ones. And so this is the, the theory behind all of Buddhist practice, is is making good patterns and good habits, good habits of thinking about ourselves, good habits of thinking about others, and so on. And uh, But some of the practices might seem at first like they don't have that much to do with any of it. You see on the shrine behind me, you see all kinds of artwork you see uh, Buddha's enlightened beings depicted in statuary and in paintings. And you might say to yourself, what's that all about? What's that all about? And it's like, this is the family album. This is the family album, the Buddhist family album. These are all of the great ancestor enlightened beings whose example can guide us today each of these beings depicted in iconography were at one point just like us, average people attempting to do and be good. And after their uh, enlightenment, they became honored for that accomplishment and for the good that they performed after their enlightenment. And now we think about them by calling them to mind. And in some traditions of Buddhism, it's not just the upliftment of looking at a picture or looking at a statue and thinking of it as a nice piece of art. In fact, I remember my teacher, um, when Kempo Karthar Rinpoche was invited to Ohio State University by one of the luminaries of Himalayan art history who gave this, extensive slideshow about Himalayan art, which all of these are examples of Himalayan art. And then afterwards, he asked Kempo Rinpoche to comment after giving his very lengthy scholarly presentation. And the first words out of Rinpoche's mouth were, this, he said, is not art. (laughs) This is not art. He said, it's, like a, it's, a, it's a roadmap for our own enlightenment. It's a way of connecting to our own Buddha nature. It's through iconography, we connect to the Buddha that's within us. We may think of the Buddha that's within us in an abstract way, but, and these have a face, but this really, pers- this is really not art at all. It is a reminder of who we are within ourselves, and it's used as an aid to meditation. It's not art. And it was, it was, I think, one of his better, um, his better. Are we going to call that a burn? <laughs> I hate to think of my teacher, this this really um, wonderful, incredibly kind and loving man, as as being. <laughs> As being capable of a burn, but you know, but he he always, whenever he did something like this, it was always incredibly kind, you know, <laughs> and he supported it with arguments as to why it's not art. He didn't just say it's not art and l- leave it, and then drop the mic, you know. He he just, you know, he he just he would go on to explain why, and um and so, uh, but the the style of meditation that many people find. Um, helpful to uh, to themselves, which is the quiet sitting meditation, right? That's where everybody starts. We call it shamatha in Sanskrit or shi S-H-I-N-A-Y in Tibetan, or tranquility in English. You know, this just tranquility, quiet sitting meditation, watching the breath, dropping thoughts, returning to the breath, dropping thoughts. And by doing this very basic meditation, we come to know that we have thoughts and that we can begin to change them. It's a powerful thing. The second style of meditation we teach here and that we learn here is compassion meditation, where we use our imagination to imagine on the outbreath that we send goodness to the world. Just extend goodness to the whole world, on the outbreath. And on the in-breath, we think that we gather and remove the suffering from the world and bring it to ourselves, where it dissolves into nothing and disappears because of the basic goodness we have inside us. The suffering has nothing to stick to. So in this way, these two styles of meditation are very accessible because everyone understands tranquility and everyone understands compassion. Even though that's a little bit of a stretch, it's still training our mind to have a more compassionate response. Every time we train in sending out love and removing suffering, using the out-breath and the in-breath, we change ourselves at a very subtle level of thinking. And we change ourselves at that level of habit, remember? Remember the level of habit? We change the subtly, we subtly change our habit level with this kind of meditation. But meditating on Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, it seems a little suspect. It's a little hinky, you know, it's not quite right. Because as one man pointed out, to Kenpo Kartha Rinpoche, I look in the mirror, I don't see any of these. I don't see, you know, in fact, the guy was asking about Manjushri, the Bodhisattva of wisdom. He's holding a sword and, you know, a book and all this kind of stuff. And he says, I, you know, why should I visualize, use the visualization meditation? They call it mantra, mantra meditation, or sometimes they call it mantra yoga yoga is like a practice, and so mantra yoga is the practice of mantra, which isn't just about the mantric names of the Buddhas, you know, om mani Mehong, and things like that. It's not just about the words. Mantra meditation is actually about the entire way we see ourselves in the world. Because in, in mantra meditation, it's not just about the sound and the qualities that's inherent in the sound of the mantra, it's also, in our entire being in this world. We have a body, we have speech and we have a mind and we bring all of that every day in our world, to our world. It's how we communicate with the world is through our body, our speech and our mind. But we have kind of solidified attitudes about our body. I'll get back to the gentleman who asked the question because it's another burn coming, just stay stay tuned. We have this body, speech, and mind, and we, um, we, but we have ideas about it. We may like our body, we may not like it. We may like the things we say, we may not like it. We may like the things we think, we may not like it. We have ideas about these things. And what happens in mantra meditation and, and what makes it so effective is that it operates on all three levels, the level of body, the level of speech, and the level of mind. Well, with our body, we set aside the idea of our body as being ordinary, maybe schlubby, maybe not so nice. Um, and instead, we visualize ourselves as a Buddha made of light and empty inside, empty luminosity. We just visualize ourselves as empty luminosity in the form of a Buddha. And we set aside that idea and think of ourselves as being this Buddha. And then the speech, we set aside our usual yak, 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 and instead we recite mantra or prayers. And we take on the, the sound of the Buddhas, the sound and emptiness of the, of the mantra. And then for thought, we the whole, I guess you could say the whole exercise is really the shape our thoughts are taking. We are the Buddha of this practice. We are doing the mantra and the speech of this Buddha. And we are imagining the entire world as being an uplifted Buddha realm. And we do this for the period of time that we are reciting our mantras and doing the visualization. And at the end of a mantra meditation like this, we dissolve everything into the smallest little, um, they call it a bindu or a small little sphere in the center of our being. And then we let that disappear and rest our mind in awareness. Remember awareness? Empty, luminous, continuously present awareness. And then when a thought arises, as it inevitably will, we think, I am the Buddha of this practice. Whether it's Chenrezig or Tara or a medicine Buddha or whatever, we think, I am that Buddha. As our next thought, the first thought might be, what time is it? The first thought might be, my leg hurts. But the next thought is going to be, I am a Buddha, I am Chenrezig or Tara. And so this style of meditating is foreign to most of us, except, of course, the athletes who used visualization techniques in order to train in their sport. If anybody in this room has done that, you know what we're talking about because often athletes or other performance um, specialists, will visualize themselves completing an action as a way of rehearsing mentally their capacity to accomplish that thing in real life. So I always say, uh, if athletes can imagine dunking a basket, hitting a baseball, or running a race, we can imagine being Buddhas. Let's, 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 be, let's be honest about that. We can do that. If they can do their sport through visualization, we can do we can do Buddha through visualization. We can become a Buddha. But back to the guy who asked the question. So this this fella says to Kempo Rinpoche, "Well, it's all well and good that you talk about us visualizing ourselves as a Buddha, but I look in the mirror and that's not what I see. Uh, I think this is kind of fake." <laughs> he says, "I think this whole thing is kind of fake. Isn't it really kind of dishonest?" And Rinpoche said, very simply, he said, well, he said, I can see why you might say that. But then he said, but you know, you've already made up who you think you are right now. Made it up completely. So why couldn't you be a Buddha? Why couldn't you be a Bodhisattva? You've already made up who you think you are right now. That was a soft burn. It wasn't, that wasn't a bad one. That was a soft one. But it but it was but it had a grain of truth in it, didn't it? Because we do create who we are moment to moment to moment to moment by letting our awareness through habit, is this coming together now? Our awareness through habit is taking the shape of me doing my thing in my world. But then, if you can take charge of that process and become the person who is Chanrezi or Tara or Medicine Buddha doing their thing in this world and so on. You can see how that subtle change can have an impact on us. It can have an impact at the very most subtle level. And also it can be a doorway, as Rinpoche said to the art history guy, it can be a doorway into recognizing and being present with our Buddha nature which right now is just theoretical for most of us. I mean, it's theoretical and we have to, I hate to use this phrase, we have to take it on faith that we actually, (laughs) we actually have Buddha nature. But as one teacher said to me, look, he said, if you may not believe you have Buddha nature, but he said, I will tell you this. He said, if you can be moved to tears by anything, music art dance theater things you read if you can or beauty the beauty of nature if you can be moved he said that's evidence that you have this well of goodness within you that we call buddha nature that's evidence and so he said you should become aware of that and so we do and this is why, in a center like this, you will see mantra practices done. And we will regularly offer classes in how to do the visualizations and how to do the mantras and so on. And so um, it's something worth knowing about, that this is why we chant the mantra, Omani Mani Peme Hong, on Tuesday nights on Zoom, you know, and and sometimes as we did this morning, Sunday mornings at 10, and why we recite the Tara practice every single Sunday in the morning here in person and on Zoom, and why we do Medicine Buddha once a month here on Zoom, and why we do protector practices once a month here in person, and uh, why we are going to be doing a mantra event this coming Saturday. And so uh, this was all a little bit of an introduction to the topic of Buddha nature uh, as a way of talking about why we are doing two Chenrezig retreats in the coming weeks and uh, to invite you to read about it and to invite you to uh, come and sit in for a little bit if you like. we, um, just last evening, we had planned for next Saturday, uh, which is the 4th of November, 2023, uh, because it's a Buddhist holiday next Saturday. It's the, um, one of the four great occasions from the life of the Buddha that we celebrate in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition using the Tibetan lunar calendar, which might be different from the Chinese Mahayana calendar. But uh, the Tibetan lunar calendar places these four days on specific months of the lunar year and the Tibetan reckoning of, of the moon cycles. So next week is the next Saturday is the day that commemorates the Buddha's return from, uh, teaching his um, his mother, uh, the Dharma. And um, because uh, his mother had taken rebirth in a celestial realm, and he, uh, the story goes that he went to visit her there and uh, gave teachings to her in, uh, in thanks and in gratitude for her having given birth to him. And so he then returned to the, the place where he was dwelling and upon his return, he resumed his teaching. And this is celebrated in the Tibetan Buddhist traditions as sort of like a Tibetan Buddhist Mother's Day, because it honors—it was honoring the Buddha's mother. But um, but it's also a day for doing little retreats on. So if you want to do some special meditation on that day, or if you want to come down to the center next Saturday, you can do so. And we had originally planned to be doing two retreats simultaneously next, uh, next Saturday. There was going to be a, a Chenrezig um, fasting retreat happening, ne- happening next week, but we just found out last evening that we're going to need to reschedule it because one of the lamas leading the retreat is unavailable next week. And so we think it's going to be moved from November the 4th to the following week, November the 11th. Following Saturday, you can check out the eventbrite. It's going to be changed uh, this evening uh, to um, to reflect the change in time and day. I mean, not in time, but in day. But we are also planning. We were also planning on doing uh, an Om Mani Home compassion mantra event on next Saturday. So we're going to do that anyhow. And uh, and that will take place from 10 a.m. I believe until 4 p.m., 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. And you can just come and go as you like. And uh, I, we are going to reconfigure the event to to meet the new schedule, in that I'm thinking of giving a brief instruction on visualization and mantra uh, at um, like 10 and 12 and 2, you know, uh, so that people can at least hear the instruction. and. And you'll also anybody who comes will receive a, a, a free small, um, you know, a booklet of uh, a, a, of Chenrezig meditation. Chenrezig being the Bodhisattva of compassion. I figured it was a good it was a good practice for right now, because you know we need it. We need more love and compassion in our lives and in the world right now. And so doing it on this special day is amazing. And of course, as you see from the placards out in the uh, lobby and in the hallway, that we're doing our fall fund drive now anyway to try to encourage people to become regular donors. And so if you want to come down that day and scan a little QR code and become a regular contributor on that special holiday, you can do that. But at the very least, you can come down and, and learn about mantra meditation and maybe do some mantra meditation. We'll also make available um, small uh, uh, some flowers that you'll be able to offer to our Buddhist monument out front that contains Buddha relics and scriptures and all kinds of uh, uh, blessings that you can in- interact with. Uh, we'll, we'll be reconfiguring the day probably in the next couple of days, and then in this week's newsletter, we'll announce the sort of new revised schedule for next Saturday. But my purpose in speaking today was to encourage people who did not, have not had any connection with mantra meditation to, what do they say, give it a whirl, you know, give it a a try, and to um, consider interacting with their Buddha nature. Uh, in the form of the Bodhisattva of Compassion, Chenrezig. Uh, and now I'm going to say I'll speak for just another few minutes about what the practice is like. You know, what's this practice like? What can you expect if you come here next Saturday? Well, uh, the the text that we work from for the uh, for the the day long practice it's quite thick, so that we're not going to have to discuss that today. <laughs> We might discuss it next week, but we're not going to discuss it today. It's very long. But um, but, uh, the practice that you would be introduced to would be quite short. It could be recited in 10 minutes. And uh, the, the layout of the little text we'll give you has the English on one side with the little Tibetan pronunciation if you want to try that out, but the English on one side. And on the other side, it describes what you're visualizing, which I think is incredibly clever. You know, while, while you are reciting your prayer of taking refuge, the same prayer we recited at the beginning today, you can think that the, all of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas are in front of you. And you can imagine that they shine light upon you and bless you and then dissolve into you as a blessing. I mean, it's a lovely little, it's a lovely short, like one minute practice. And then after that, you can imagine that Chenrezig is present above your head. You can pray to Chenrezig, ask for the blessing, and then imagine that you receive it and that you then become Chenrezig, made of light, empty inside, empty luminosity, the same empty luminosity that is our awareness, taking the shape of the Bodhisattva Chenrezig. And at the conclusion, after you've recited mantra, wishing benefit for the whole world, which also becomes a Buddha realm, this is really useful, because when Chen- Chenrezig in the in the meditation shines light upon you, Chenrezig also shines light on the entire universe, turning all of it into a Buddha realm. And that means everybody you know the people you are friends with, the people you are not friends with, the politicians in Washington, everybody immediately turns into Genrezyg, which can really be helpful. They may not be aware of what we are doing, but it's okay. They don't need to know, it's just for us. And at the conclusion of this meditation, as we imagine the world being transformed and so on, we then imagine that all of the enlightened beings dissolve into the Chen rezi that is uh, present with us, that Chen rezi dissolves into us, and then we dissolve into that small speck of light at our heart and relax into our basic awareness from which everything arises. And then what's our first thought after we think, what time is it? We think I am Chen rezi. So So, um, this is something I wanted to talk about today, just to kind of introduce the idea that we all have Buddha nature, that we can know it, and that we can train in knowing it by doing visualization and mantra meditation. So there we, we left enough time for questions so um, and discussion. Uh, I, I do not, I, I, I promise no burns, Kempa Rupa was the master. I cannot imitate that. I cannot. I cannot do that. But uh, but I I would be happy to discuss any aspect of this, whether it's Buddha nature, awareness, shamatha, compassion meditation, mantra, whatever you whatever you'd like. Even the iconography. I can talk about any of those things. We have two microphones on either side, and if any questions, I don't I don't know if any questions come across online, but there we have it. Yeah. Yeah, feel welcome, yeah. And you can, uh, yeah.
2: Thank you, Lama Kathy. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah. Um, you talk about uh, Chen Rezi uh, and uh, the other uh, deities?
1: Well, you know, I'll tell you what, deity is a funny word, isn't it? I think uh, I think we that misunderstanding happened a long time ago uh, because in uh, in Indian Buddhism, they started using the word Deva, which meant God, or Devi, which means goddess, and it kind of stuck. But they're not gods; they're they're like saints. They're saints. They you know that's uh, I think that's probably a better way to put it. I had a Catholic friend tell me uh, how to work with that. He said, you know. He said in Catholicism, he said, we got criticized and we still do for like worshiping statues because we have statues of the saints and of the Virgin Mary and so forth in our churches. And he said, but we have to just, you know, differentiate between God who created the world, who we worship and the saints whom we venerate. Classy. And so I now have a way of explaining Buddhist prayer and, Buddhist? Are we going to call that theology? There's no God in Buddhism, so it's like anyhow. Sorry. Thank I, you. I really apologize for interrupting your no, question. No, no,
0: that is what I wanted to hear.
1: Really? Okay. Thank you. <laughs> oh God, love you, as we say in Buddhism. <laughs> yeah, it's really hard to get past that word, though, isn't it? It's weird, isn't it? It's hard to get past that. Yeah, Tim. Tim is next. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But thank you, thank you for that. Good morning. Good morning.
0: I'm wondering if you could compare and contrast enlightenment, Buddha nature, and maybe nirvana.
1: Mm-hmm. Enlightenment, Buddha nature, and nirvana. Oh boy. Mm. First of all, I have to tell you, Tim, I am not a scholar. So you're gonna kind of get the Lama Kathy answer as opposed to the scholarly answer.
0: But the last time I brought up a, something along this line, you said that you were a word person, and so I thought maybe I this would words. fall into that I, category. Yeah, you
1: know, you're right about that. I am a word person. I did I did major in words in college. Okay. Yeah, okay, I'll, I'll take that on. Okay. Yeah, thanks for asking. Okay, If um, they are all related. Uh, so, I mean, that's a good place to begin. All of these three words are related. They're all related to each other in that, uh, in that, we all have uh, a mind that can know itself, and knowing itself, we feel liberated from the the suffering caused by our mind. Uh, one of uh, I can't remember which of the lamas said this, but. Uh, One of the lamas said, "It's uh, once we realize that we are telling ourselves a story about our life and that that story might actually be made up, we stop being uh, hurt by that story that we tell ourselves. So that is like a release from suffering. And so this is where quiet sitting meditation brings us some mental peace because we realize we can let go of the narrative and just let the mind be, okay? So that is one of the definitions of nirvana. That's one of many definitions of nirvana is that peace that one feels when one relinquishes the complexity of habitual clinging and fixation. Uh, because the Buddha said uh, in his teaching on the second of the Four Noble Truths, he said, suffering has a cause, and that cause is clinging and fixation. And when we relinquish clinging and fixation, we experience peace, internal peace. And uh, there are two types of nirvana there is something called abiding nirvana, and then non abiding ver- nirvana. Abiding Nirvana is the state of, um, of absorption and meditation when one realizes the nature of one's mind from the point of view of uh, of letting go and relinquishing fixation. There's some peace that one, one experiences, but one, one needs to remain in meditation in order to experience that peace. And therefore that becomes a problem because then Such a person who is abiding in nirvana cannot get up and act for the benefit of others. So this is where non-abiding nirvana comes about, where a person taking the bodhisattva commitment, uh, commits to abiding and remaining in this world of suffering the Buddha called samsara, um, and giving up, the idea that they're going to somehow escape from samsara, but remain, they're going to actually remain there as uh, as a, uh, an enlightened being to benefit those who are left behind. And they call that non-abiding nirvana because they don't suffer in the way that ordinary people suffer, but they are there. Now this non-abiding nirvana is really, um, a, uh, a fruition of uh, this, this non abiding nirvana is considered to be full Buddhahood because you're not clinging to anything, even to the state of peace. Because those in abiding nirvana are still clinging to the idea that they are in nirvana and in peace, and don't bug me. <laughs> you know, don't <laughs> bug me, I'm in peace. Don't bug me. But those who Uh, who continue on the path and and practice the bodhisattva path uh, achieve what is called a non-abiding nirvana. They don't suffer, but they also don't have to sit in meditation in order to experience that. Does that make sense? Okay. So they're able to walk around among beings and to help them. And so that is is considered to be in the Mahayana uh, position, That's considered full enlightenment. Nirvana, on the other hand, abiding nirvana, not full enlightenment because there's still the clinging to peace. There's still some clinging to peace. But non-abiding nirvana from the Mahayana position is full Buddhahood. Now, you may say, What is where does Buddha nature come in? Buddha nature is the is the um, continuous presence of this enlightened state of mind, the continuous presence of this enlightened state of mind within us, it has always been there. It will never go away. uh, And it will either be realized in this lifetime or not. But if it's not realized, then we will go on to another samsaric rebirth in the world of suffering because we haven't realized it. It's there, but um, how did I, how did I, uh, I'm re- trying to remember a couple of the examples that were given uh, and they're not going to be perfect examples, but, um, we will get glimpses from time to time of this Buddha nature, but we have to truly practice in order to develop it. And that's why we do the, the, the quiet sitting. That's why we do the compassion meditation. And that's why we do the mantra meditation to help bring out that buddha nature because our buddha nature and ignorance have been like side by side from beginningless time and the ignorance is the ignorance of not knowing we have buddha nature and what uh, my teacher said kempo kartha ribashe he said this mere sheen like the oil slick on a puddle this mere sheen of ignorance has covered our buddha nature since beginningless time and so that's why all the practices are meant to dispel that so those are three uh, those are a way of talking about those three words. What about buddhahood? buddhahood yes what you achieve in when you become enlightened buddhahood as opposed to egohood which is kind of what we got now <laughs> They are indeed buddhahood and enlightenment are indeed the same yeah no thank you for asking okay yes Yeah. We have time maybe for a couple more. Yeah. Kind of have like a two-parter question about the visualization conclusion. Sure. Normally I close my eyes when I'm like letting go of the visualization. Does it matter if I have my eyes open or closed? I actually talked to a llama about this. And the answer I got was um, everybody's mind and body are different. And uh, for many people, it is easier, this is what the Lama, this is a Tai Sita Rinpoche, uh, he, what For many people, it is easier to visualize with the eyes closed. And, uh, but he said, there are actually individuals who can visualize with their eyes open. He said, he doesn't see many of these kind of people, but most people need to have their eyes closed for this. And as, as far as letting go of the visualization, Uh, and letting the mind rest in its own nature, it will depend on the individual. For some people, it is easier to leave the eyes closed for that portion. And for other people, it's easier to open one's eyes. But I mean, you're not wide open eyes. They're just just slightly open. Um, Siddha Rinpoche observed um, that I'm quite nearsighted. And and he said, he said, because of because your glasses make your eyes work so hard, he said, you're probably going to be just as capable of meditating on the mind with, with your eyes closed as you will open. So he said, you know, so he said, do it too. He said, you're probably gonna be better off just letting them remain closed. So even now, uh, even though having the eyes slightly open is, uh, is part of the shamatha instruction, I still leave mine partially closed, lightly closed for that, because it really does help. So that's that was question number one. Did that yes. help? Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, number two. Now, the two. second part, um, so normally when I'm imagining it, like, you know, condensing Dissolving, down yeah. into a small point. ball of light and then releasing, I normally have my eyes closed at this point, but I'm imagining, like, blackness. Is it, should it be black? Because I know you said... Um, Instead of emptiness, like limitless is a better uh, yeah. descriptive word. I, I get what you're saying. Uh, yes, uh, uh, when we were talking yesterday, uh, during the uh, program yesterday, mm-hmm. uh, I observed that Sityur does not like the word emptiness uh, to describe this you know, sort of central mm-hmm. tenet of Buddhism that nothing is established of itself and by itself. And it, because he said, when I hear the word emptiness, he says I think of nihilism and the number zero, and he said that's not what it is. It's actually limitless. It's all potential. That's so. He said I prefer to think of that, and so I think that um, every person will conceive of emptiness differently because mm-hmm. of their background, and so I think I'm trying to think about. I just think I don't. I don't really even think of a color. Okay. I just. I just think of it as a releasing, okay. a relinquishment of uh, conceptuality. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's a little more of a, ex, if, if it's just an exercise in relaxation and letting go and, and taking no position. And so I'm wondering if thinking about it that way might be helpful, but okay. I, I, because I've never really thought about conceiving of it as a color. So. <laughs> So um, your mileage may vary. Okay. I think the main thing is to let the mind be without object. All right. Briefly without object, which you can do sort of, Kemper Mache says when you're between tasks at work, he said, practice this idea. Okay. He said, when, you're, when one task is ended before the next one begins, just let your mind kind of like drop. And think about nothing for like a second or two. He said, nobody's going to know what you're doing. They're just going to think you're being thoughtful. <laughs> he said, but you're giving your conceptual fixated mind a little bit of a vacation. You're giving it a rest. Okay, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Oh, yeah, great questions. Yes. Yeah. This will uh, be the last question today because we're getting down to the bottom of the hour. Hey.
2: Hi, Lama cat. Um, lately, there has been much discussion in my home um, regarding the role of compassion and um, empathy.
1: And empathy. Empathy. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay.
2: In how we interact with the world, um, always being mindful of that, and as a practical matter, how would you suggest we, I'm a new Buddhist, as you well know.
1: Yeah, Um, it's okay, I I think we're all sort of newbies in a way.
2: (laughs) I'll be saying this 30 years from now. Um, But as a a new Buddhist, how do I, in a practical sense, um, bring to bear my Buddha nature? Um, when I'm confronted with things that break my heart, when I when I see things that I can't directly address, such as the things that are happening across the world, how would you suggest that I um, use the tools, I guess, um, to figure out a way to? put more light, I guess, into the world.
1: What was that last sentence?
2: To put more light
1: into the world. Okay, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I really appreciate you asking this question because I feel like, I feel as though everyone needs this information. You know, we all need, we are all seeking this information right now because as as individuals who have deep feelings. You know, we have deep feelings as human beings. We, we feel the pain of other people, and that's kind of empathy, right? Because, because we, uh, Kempo Karthar Rinpoche, when he was talking about the four immeasurable meditations, you know, may all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May they be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. You know, it's, it's about the topic of love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. Frequently, when he talks about this, he'll talk about equanimity first and say all human beings and all beings, really animals and insects, everybody wants happiness. There's nobody who wants suffering, nobody wants it. And so in this way, he said, if we think about it, even people doing the very worst things in the world are doing it because they feel it will bring them safety or happiness. And um, as wrong-headed as we may see that, as their methods as being this, this is what they're trying to accomplish. And um, and so we can feel for the situation, and we can also see the bigger picture. But you know, as Buddhists, we can see the bigger picture, which is that people who harm others are creating for themselves immense suffering in the future just immense suffering in the future. And we can feel some compassion for that, but that doesn't mean that we don't attempt to stop someone from harming somebody else. And that's, I think, this is hard for us because our other strong habit is um, what one Lama called righteous anger, where we're angry at injustice. And because as, um, as, uh, as, I mean, scientists will tell us that as primates were hardwired for justice, they did some kind of experiment with monkeys, and they found out if they paid one group of monkeys for a task with grapes, and the other group of monkeys they didn't pay, the, the group of monkeys were not getting paid had a sit-down strike. <laughs> so we're hardwired. We are hardwired for justice. It's just the bottom line. We are hardwired for justice. So. When we see injustice, it upsets us. And um, when we see justice done and the way we feel it needs to be done, we feel relief. And so um, we have to work with all of this, the recognition that in trying to get justice, some people create more injustice. I mean, it's it's really a difficult situation. and uh, And it just shows us the cyclical, and a sometimes uh, scarily uh, repetitive nature of samsara, this world of suffering, where goodness is unlikely to arise as a general experience. And so when we see things happening across the world, the thing that Rinpoche said to do when you see two beings in conflict, whether it's two people arguing in the street, or whatever, he said, if you've got the skill to go down and sort it out, well, then go sort it out. And if you don't, call on somebody who does have the skill to come and sort it out. But if you can do none of those things, he said, make positive aspirations for, the, for both sides in the situation that they both are freed from this conflict and that they come to a place of peace in their hearts. And, uh, and so in Buddhism, we bless everybody in a conflict. You know, we pray for the beings that are causing the harm because we know what their future is like, and we pray for the beings who, are, who we perceive of as being the victims in a conflict because we see what they're going through. It's, it's, it's like we have to shed light on the entire world. And how can we do this? Well, when we're overcome with a story, like the world is hopeless or I am just one person if we you know go to the, go to the place of that sort of story then we do feel helpless but if we can relate to buddha nature in in this way and imagine that we are in the presence of all enlightened beings and ask the enlightened beings to accomplish what we ourselves cannot and then ask them to shine light upon and bless and purify the minds of even those who cause harm Kempo Karthar Rinpoche said, we have to make the aspiration that those who cause harm are themselves freed from the bondage of that hatred, because they're they're in bondage too. They're in bondage to their hatred. And so he said, we have to find a way to pray for them to be released from that bondage, because until they are, they're going to keep committing terrible wrong acts because they think those wrong acts are gonna bring justice or do something that, it, that they're not really possible to do. So uh, how do we not forget our light by remembering the presence of Buddha nature within us and other beings and making these positive aspirations because the positive aspirations replace the story of I can't do anything, it's hopeless. You see what I'm saying? We have to replace that. Feeling, with a feeling of I want what is best for everyone. This benevolent feeling that I have of compassion for this person in in a conflict and that person in a conflict. This compassionate feeling, you know, may it give birth to something beyond me. You see what I'm saying? And um, I'm not sure this is an answer to your question. I may have actually missed your point entirely. But 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 I'm hoping that by at least remembering our own goodness and our own inner compassion, goodness, and wisdom, that we become capable of of making these kinds of aspirations for the world. Because in that way, we're adding to the positive balance rather than the negative balance. I wish it were easy, you know, you know, but yeah, but I, I appreciate that. And sometimes I think, I think we have to appreciate the struggle of it. The fact that we struggle to know the right thing to do, I think is a good thing. But um, I believe that um, we all have a role to play in bringing goodness into the world. And this is how we do it because we're, because we're a sensitive and caring and loving individuals We're going to feel powerless in this kind of situation. But with the help of those examples, hopefully we can bring some of that goodness to bear on the situation. So, so, yeah, yeah, thank you. Because of time, we'll have to stop here. Um, It's my hope that uh, talking about these things today helps us with our own light, and that if uh, you get an opportunity to uh, come and visit with us next Saturday, uh, that um, you can ma- maybe participate in some of this meditation also yourself, so we'll see. But excellence at the end, you guys did a great job of excellence at the beginning and the middle. Your patience is amazing, so, um, so we'll dedicate. And we'll just do this in, uh, in English because we're short on time. We'll call together all the goodness that we've created by being here and dedicate it to specifically all of the conflict zones in the world, and and may beings find ways through, and uh, through this to come out the other side and do do better for us all. It starts with the words, "By this merit, by this merit, may you all attain omniscience. May it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth." old age, sickness, and death. From the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings. The courageous Manjushri, who knows everything as it is, Samantabhadra, who also knows in the same way, and all the bodhisattvas that I may follow in their path, I completely dedicate all this virtue. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for being here today. Uh, please drive safely out there. And uh, it's a little wet. Uh, and we'll see you next week. Okay, thanks, everyone. me home.
0: Thank you for joining us for this week's Dharma Talk. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, please subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes. To learn more about the Columbus Teksum Choling or to donate to support our Dharma Talk series, please visit our website at columbusktc.org. The opening and closing music for the podcast is Tibetan Flute Song by Tamding Arts at tamdingarts.com. Please join us again next week for another Dharma Talk.